Well, if you would take your Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12. The book of Romans is a book that explains the doctrine of salvation. In its pages, the Apostle Paul, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, fashions really an airtight case covering the need for and the divine process of righteousness through faith in Christ. Again, I trust it will be a blessing as we are, as I mentioned before, in Romans chapter 12 this evening. It's one of the most foundational documents in our country. When it was signed, it marked the beginning of one of the most fascinating experiments of the world as we know it. The Declaration of Independence brought to the fore a basic understanding that we have been given the opportunity to live lives that are free, and these freedoms have been bestowed upon us by our Creator. And what's amazing about this is at the end of the document, there are 56 signatures, and they tie everything to this one pursuit. In fact, it states, and I quote, and for the support of this declaration, with a firm reliance on the protection of divine providence, we mutually pledge to each other our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. Beloved, consider this. They, being free, pledged their everything. For them, it just made sense. For them, it became their mantra, their priority, and their pursuit. They did this for an idea. They did this for a way of life. This evening, I wonder, are you able to make a similar statement in pursuit of a greater priority? I wonder this evening, are you willing to pledge your everything to our Savior? Think about it. We as believers have gained so much in Christ. We've been given the righteousness of our Savior as the choir sang and as you sang with the choir. His robes became mine. The righteous robes of Jesus were then given to us. And really, to be honest, our record of unrighteousness was laid on him at the cross. There was a great exchange that took place. And so if we sit here and we are children of God, if we have trusted in Christ as our Savior, we are eternally free. We are forgiven. We are adopted as sons of God. This is our reality if we are in Christ. But now, I wonder, what do we do now? After all, Christ didn't save us and immediately take us home to heaven, did he? We're all still here, and so what do we do after that salvation? What shall we do in response to these realities, that you have the righteousness of Christ upon you if you are a child of God, if you've trusted Christ? Think about this. We know not what the future holds. Our year 2024 is only a few days old. But what are you going to do with your year ahead of you in relation to Christ? See, the reality is that people seldom offer the whole of themselves to God. Oftentimes, there's usually one or two things that is very, very uh, close and near, dear to our hearts. And so when God sometimes wants to put a finger on that thing, we might say, Lord, you can have every other part of my life, but this one little area, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of mine. That's the temptation. 
of every single one of us here. However, the expectation that we give everything back to Christ is very real, and it will be seen in our text for the evening. Our passage this evening then makes clear that because we have been justified or declared righteous, we must become then living sacrifices who pursue lives of righteousness. And we're going to be in a text that probably most of us know. Probably most of us could even quote. We're going to look at Romans chapter 12, verses 1 through 2. Let's read that together. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. And I said, as I said before, you probably were quoting that along with me as I was reading it. We know these verses, but I think sometimes we struggle to live these verses. And right here at the outset of 2024, I wonder, do we need to go back and we need to think about what our Savior did and then by extension what we are to do in response to that? It's interesting, again, as I mentioned, we're in Romans, and Romans is the story of redemption, or it's the case for redemption. And in it, chapters 1 through 11, Paul really lays out what the gospel is and how how we can be justified, justification by faith or through faith in Christ. And then you get to the end of chapter 11, and you have verses 33, 34, and 35, and 36, and really what it is is it's a benediction. After the gospel has been clearly preached, now he says, to God be the glory. Verse 36, for of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be glory forever. Amen. It's a study of the gospel, but the book of Romans doesn't stop there. It continues on for several more chapters, and what we have in chapter 12 is really almost like a turning of a page, and then you get to our text, and it it really is Paul saying, now here is what you must do. If you are in Christ, and you've accepted Christ, and you have his righteousness imparted or imputed to your account, now here's how you should live. Sunday night, I'm probably talking to most, most of you have, have accepted Christ. You would name the name of Christ as, as your Savior. But now what? What about 2024? What about the future? Well, we need to see first off that because you've been justified, you must give yourself completely to God. Look at the verse again. I beseech you, therefore, brethren. Beseech you. This is a command. This is an expectation. This is a part that we must now play. If you are a saint this evening, if you have trusted Christ as your only Lord and Savior, then this is your expectation. This is your happy burden, if you will. What we're going to talk about is is, is pointed to those who are believers. Again, it's a command given to believers, brethren. Only those who have experienced this judicial declaration of righteousness are capable to follow and fulfill the command that is to follow. 
If you have yet to put faith in Christ for salvation, I want to make clear right here at the outset, you need to trust Christ. That's where you need to begin. Go back to Romans chapter 1, Romans chapter 3. Look at your state. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. That sin brought about a wage, and that wage is death. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. That's the bad news, and it's really bad. But I love Romans 6.23 that it doesn't stop there, because Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Romans 5.8, but God commendeth his love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And so, if you have yet to put your faith in Christ, you need to start there. You need to trust Christ for the covering of your sin, to have his righteousness given to you. You must trust Christ in order that your sins may be covered. But now, once the righteousness of Christ has been credited to your account through faith, then you are then called to live a certain way. Specifically, Paul says right out here that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. We'll get to that command in a second, but this is possible only because of the mercies of God. Again, the mercy of God is seen throughout all the pages of Romans. We are deserving of God's wrath. We are destined to eternal punishment. Yet God offers a clean record because of the righteousness of Jesus. You may say, Pastor Nate, you're kind of saying the same thing over and over again. I'm saying that intentionally so that even we as believers, we are reminded of where we were, our state, before we trusted Christ. We were in dire need of mercy and grace. You have been given the righteous record of Jesus. You got something you don't deserve. That is mercy. And he has taken your filthy record upon himself, and he hung on the tree for you. Again, this is mercy for which we never deserve, or for which we don't deserve. We don't deserve that record. And so, whatever we're going to do for God, yes, sometimes we can think that, hey, now I'm saved, I've got this figured out, and now I'm going to live on my own. But really, to be honest, the mercy that saved us is still needed for us to be like Jesus. And so we're still in need of the mercy of God. And so he says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, so believers, by the mercies of God, now here it is, the command, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. We are to give ourselves back to Christ. We're supposed to be, we present our bodies, and this idea of body has to deal with, has to, to, to involve not only just our bodies, but also our minds, our emotions, our intellect. And we'll talk about our intellect here in a little bit. But it's every part of us. We give that back to Christ. So we are to be a living sacrifice. Galatians 2.20 talks about this. That the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. So the next breath you take is meant to be a living sacrifice. 
for Christ. You make yourself a living sacrifice. It's interesting, this for the original audience, sacrificial, uh, the sacrificial system was going to be a real, uh, they, they were going to be able to understand this very easily because as Paul was writing to the Jewish believers, he was under, they were understanding exactly what they came out of. Because they were uh, steeped in the sacrificial system. They understood it. And even the Gentiles that were going to read Romans chapter 1 through chapter 11, they would have at least an inkling. But what Paul says here is he wants you, or what, what, what the expectation is, is that you would be a living sacrifice. Now what's interesting, and you probably have heard this over and over again, but what's interesting about living sacrifices is they tend to want to crawl off the altar. They're on there for a little bit, and then they want to kind of, well, okay, I, I did my time, I'm, I'm done. But what we have here is this is something that should happen every single day, every single moment, where you, again, dedicate yourself, every part, to Christ. That's going to have ramifications to where you go. That's going to have ramifications to the entertainment that you enjoy. That's going to have, have ramifications to, yes, even the thoughts that you have about Jesus, making sure that it is proper, and we'll talk about that here in a second. But everything, your mind, your motives, it all has to be given to Christ as a living sacrifice. That's the expectation. How are you doing? Are you a, a sacrifice that has maybe crawled off the altar? Has something else kind of crowded in? He doesn't stop there because he does say this is done by making yourself a living sacrifice because he says you must present yourself a, a living sacrifice. But then he kind of talks a little bit more about what that living sacrifice should look like. He says that you should present your bodies a living sacrifice, continuing on, holy and acceptable unto God. Holy. What is holy? Holy, that word holy has the idea of being set apart from something to something. And if you name the name of Christ, you should be set apart from the old way of living and then be set apart to the new way of living. Set apart from the flesh and now set apart to living a life pleasing to God. It's fascinating. Sometimes we get this messed up in that we sometimes think, well, I, after I accept Christ, I have to go and I have to clean myself up and I have to make myself, I have to make myself holy. Well, in reality, again, this is all based on the mercies of God. And if we try to do this ourselves, then we are in danger of a thing called legalism, where we try to gain God's favor by doing or not doing certain things. So what does this mean when he says that you are to be holy? It literally means that we are to be set apart to be different from the world. Now, there are some personal uh, choices that we will have to make. If Christ is our most important priority and most important pursuit, then we won't do certain things. And then on, on extent, by extension, then we will do other things. We will be holy and acceptable unto God. God, God says in 1 Peter, be ye holy for I am holy. And if we have Christ, then we should be manifesting the holiness of God. And then it talks about being acceptable unto God. Can I say, none of us are acceptable unto God without Christ. 
But when we come and we say, Lord, I want to live for you and I want to serve you because I love you. I'm willing to make sacrifices for you. I am a living sacrifice. Take me and use me however you want. Therein is the acceptable part. When we give of ourselves and we say, Lord, take it all. Take every part. God doesn't want and God doesn't tolerate competition. He doesn't want part of you. He wants all of you. And so you must be holy, set apart, and then acceptable unto God, giving of yourself in as a living sacrifice. Why should we do this? Well, the verse continues. They, uh, holy, uh, that you present, let's, let's, let's pick up there, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God. Here it is, which is your reasonable service. Why? So what, Pastor Nate? Why should I do this? Well, it is your reasonable service. And again, we've been, even from the time you got into your pew, and then when the service started, we've been talking about and singing about the blood of Jesus, talking about the redemption that we have in him, looking at the robes of righteousness that are mine because of what he has done. We've, talked, we've sang about Calvary covering everything. Have you ever gotten something given to you or received something from someone that was, you were almost speechless when you got it? And you couldn't help but be knit to that person because of what they gave to you. The zenith of that in all of creation is that God loved you enough to send his only begotten son to die for you and to make a payment for your sin. And then when we stand redeemed, it just makes sense for us to say, Lord, take it all. Take every part of me. I will give you every area of my life. It is our reasonable service. And that word reasonable has the idea of it's logical. Look at what Christ has done for you. It just makes sense. You've been given so much in Christ. And it's interesting, if, you're, if you struggle in the idea or the, the reality of being a living sacrifice, the way to fix it is I would suggest you go and you look at what Christ did for you. You really grasp, or you really start to study at least. I don't know if we'll ever really grasp. <clears throat> but you really study what Christ did for you. And when we really get an idea or at least a, a view of what Christ did, then for us to say, Lord, take it, take it all. Take every part of my life. My talent, my time, my treasure, have it all. Why? Because it's just our reasonable service. It's interesting. I looked at some of the greatest illustrations of pardon and forgiveness in the secular judicial system. And though I came across instances similar to presidential pardon, or expungement of your record, or commutation of sentences, I was unable to find something that illustrated judicial imputation. Now, what is imputation? Imputation being that a righteous person's account is given or transferred to an unrighteous person's account so that the unrighteous is declared righteous, while at the same time the righteous person is condemned as unrighteousness, uh, unrighteous, and that person pays for the unrighteousness of the unrighteous. 
I searched in vain to find a secular illustration for this reality. And then it dawned on me. There is nothing like imputation except when you study it in the realm of theology. In the secular world, imputation is foreign, but in the spiritual realm, imputation is foundational. In the secular realm, imputation is a pipe dream. Imagine having, if you had unrighteousness and someone else gave you their record. It doesn't happen, though. And this is only possible in the theological realm. Jesus was the only one who made a sufficient righteous record available to you. He paid the price of your sin. Remember 2 Corinthians 5.21. For he, God, hath made him, Jesus, to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him, in Jesus. This is what the gospel is. Oh, what a wonderful reality. We have the righteousness of Jesus credited to our account if you are a believer. We get that record through faith and trust in him. But now, since Jesus has done that for us, if you are in Christ, then it is our reasonable service to offer ourselves back to him as a living sacrifice, is it not? One of the greatest indications of a person's salvation is that Jesus becomes their master. Jesus becomes their pursuit. Jesus becomes their priority. You could say Jesus becomes their everything. I wonder, is that true of you tonight? Jesus did so much for you. Have you surrendered as a living sacrifice to him? Think about your life. Is there any area maybe in a corner, maybe in the back of your mind, in a priority, have you surrendered everything back to him? Is there something you are holding on to? Perhaps it's a pet sin. Perhaps it's maybe not even a sin, but maybe something that's keeping you from Jesus. Have you, like living sacrifices, crawled off the altar? Are you holy? Have you given him your all? Maybe it's time we offer anew ourselves and our everything to him. That's what he expects. So if you, or because you have been justified, you must give your all to Christ. But the verse doesn't, or the, the passage doesn't end there. We need to see second, that because you have been justified, now you must pursue righteousness. And this might seem a little bit odd. Because objectively, you have been given the righteousness of Jesus. Yet that judicial righteousness ought to be seen and proven in your day-to-day life. Before you were saved, you were unable to pursue righteousness. You were by nature the children of wrath. But now after salvation, Romans is clear that those who've been transformed by faith in Christ will now pursue righteousness. But what does that look like and how does that happen? Well, first off, by avoiding the world's philosophies and actions. Look at verse 2 says, after you present yourself a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service, now he continues, and be not conformed to this world. Instead, be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Because you've been justified, now pursue righteousness. First off, by avoiding the world's philosophies and actions. 
The word is conformed. Be not conformed to the world. This word conformed is something akin to a masquerade or as acting. An actor would conform himself to the image of that character. Figuring out what that character would say and how that that character would speak. And seeking to mimic that. Another thought that I have as a youth pastor and as probably a person who has a mind of a child <laughs> um, is I love Plato, And uh, my kids love Plato, And we have quite the collection at our house. And one of the things that I love about Plato is it will conform to the image of whatever you kind of decide to make it. And I love that little machine. I don't even know what the name of it is. But that little machine, and maybe I've even said this from this pulpit. You put this, you put the, you, you put this blob of Play-Doh at the top, and then there's a little fulcrum and an arm that then it pivots and it pushes the Play-Doh down this little chute. Well, at the end of this little chute is this little screen, and at the screen it has little holes, or it has, and it can make it look like spaghetti, or it can, you know, whatever it is, however you feel like you want to make that day. And when you push down the plunger, the, the, the Play-Doh is conformed to the image of whatever it's going to go through. And so, yes, as I was thinking about conforming, I thought a little bit about acting, but my mind went to the Play-Doh idea. And what is your filter? What is your worldview, if you will? Are you conformed to the world's philosophies? Saying, this is what you must do to be successful. This is where you must go in order to have joy. Paul says, be not conformed to the world. You avoid the world's philosophies. And what is the world? Well, it's the philosophies and actions that have set themselves in opposition to the things, the plans, and the agenda of God. Again, sometimes it's going to be overt, and you know it right away. This is wrong. But other times it's going to be, it's going to be a lot more tricky to figure that out. And I would say you need to start off by, by presenting your body a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, and then be dependent on the Lord for wisdom to make sure that we are not conforming to the world's philosophies. Paul makes it clear we are to avoid mimicking the world's philosophies and actions. Remember when we were saved from those philosophies and actions, you were saved from some of these things. Those are attitudes and, and actions that glorify, glorify the flesh and enslave the soul. And let me ask, why would we then entertain returning back to something like that? And then let me also ask, do you look like the world tonight? Do you feel compelled to pursue what everyone else has? Do you feel more comfortable with your unsaved friends? You might be being conformed to the world. He says, be not conformed to this world. But at the same time, he says something else we are to do. We are to be transformed by the renewing of our mind that we may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. We must be transformed to look more and more like Jesus. This encompasses your thinking. He says very clearly that you be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Let's back up a little bit. Let's talk about what that word transformed means. I'm going to borrow our, our dear brother's illustration uh, Mr. Henry, uh, Mr. Uh, um, Mr. Brown, excuse me, he was speaking in, in Kids for Truth. And he brought up the illustration 
that you are transformed similar to a butterfly. It begins as a caterpillar, and then it goes into the chrysalis, and then it comes out as what? A butterfly. And you are transformed. And so I'm going to kind of take his idea and, and, and kind of go with that in this verse. Be not conformed to this world, but be transformed. And that word transformed literally has, it's a completely different look. It's a completely different entity. So you are to be transformed to look more like our Savior. How does that happen? Again, by, by dealing with your thinking, it says right there, uh, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And what does that mean? Well, that means that you are patterning your life after what is true in Scripture. You get to know Jesus, and you begin to look and to think like Jesus. And how do we do that? What is the best way for us to know who Jesus is? It's right here. Because a lot of us can have an idea of who Jesus is, and the world has an idea of who Jesus is, but they get it wrong. If you want to know who Jesus is, and you want to think like Jesus, and you want to act like Jesus and be conformed to the image of Christ, then you must be in God's word. Again, 2024 is just beginning. You can jump on to the scripture reading plan that we have here at Grace and get to know who your Savior is and what he would do and how he reacts to things. You get to know who Jesus is and you begin to think like him. Have you ever watched a couple who maybe when they first get married, they seem like they're so different? Oh, they're in love, but they're so different. And then fast forward decade after decade to the point where they start to look like each other and they start to think like each other and they start to laugh like each other. And you're like, wow, you guys, you guys have just become one person, which is what should be happening. But anyway, over time, you get to know that person to such a degree that you then begin to mimic them. Do we do that with our Savior? I wonder, do I do that with my Savior? Do I know him so well that I act like him and I respond like him? So be renewed in the spirit of your mind. And then he continues on, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. What is God's will for us? God's will for us is that we would look like Jesus. This transformation is to be like Jesus. It's what God desires for all of us. It is his perfect will of God. Very quickly, go over to Romans chapter 8. Romans 8. We're going to look at verses 28 through 30. And I'm just going to read it. I'll make a few comments and then we'll move on. But what is God's will for us? Romans 8, 28 through 30. And we know that all things work together for good. To them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. What is his purpose? For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his son. That is the good. That is the purpose. That he, Jesus, might be the firstborn among many brethren. And then here's the process. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he called. Whom he called, them he justified. And whom he justified, them he also glorified. What is Romans saying? We all are to look like our Savior. The glory of the Lord is what he will always pursue. So think about this. That means he will never do anything that doesn't transform you to look like Jesus. Why? Because he has to glorify himself. And I wonder, are you participating in this agenda? 
in your life? Do you think like a believer? Do you think like your Savior? Is his plan for you your plan for yourself? We must be transformed to look more like our Savior. So to wrap this all up, he grew up up poor but ended up being the overseer of vast fortunes dedicated to gospel ministry. He was a simple shoe salesman, but he carried the gospel to countless thousands of people. He was unlearned, but he started and oversaw one of the biggest Sunday school movements the country has ever seen. He never was ordained or seminary trained, but his preaching was full of rich doctrine, and he learned how to wield the scriptures masterfully. In fact, his preaching was used by God in the transformation of several of the greatest Victorian-era theologians and preachers. He was credited with crisscrossing both the United States and the British Isles, and he brought revival wherever he went. Who am I speaking of? Well, I'm speaking of Mr. Dwight L. Moody. And he was a walking contradiction of human logic. Yet, he was greatly used by God. And as I was reading about him this week, I marveled at how the Lord would use him. And I wondered what was the key to how, Mar- how, how Dwight L. Moody excuse me, was used. Again, there was not much great about him. And to help answer that question, at one of his many stops in Britain, he was preaching alongside another evangelist named Henry Varley. And after discussing the work of God, Varley looked at Mr. Moody and voiced a pivotal phrase that stuck with Moody for his life. And it describes the key of God's usage. He stated that the world has yet to see what God can do with and for and through and in a man who is fully and wholly consecrated to him. And Mr. Moody walked away and said, Lord, I want to be that man. And he gave himself and dedicated himself to the work of God above everything else. Because of what Christ did for him, it just made sense for Mr. Moody to dedicate everything to his Savior. Again, humanly speaking, It wasn't a great offering, but from God's perspective, it was just what he was looking for. He was looking for a living sacrifice. I think sometimes we think about, well, I don't have the ability to serve like that. But do you realize God probably isn't looking so much for ability, but availability? He's not maybe looking so much for skill, but just surrender, He was looking for a living sacrifice. Have you surrendered to be a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto him? Are you mimicking his righteousness, or are you being squeezed into the mold of this world? Mr. Moody was willing to sign everything over to the pursuit of God and his his service for God. And I wonder, will you dedicate your lives, your fortunes, your sacred honor to something of great importance, most great importance? Won't you pledge your everything to Christ? He's worthy. And I would add, we didn't get to spend a lot of time on this, but he is oh so good. When you give of yourself, he remembers all of that. As you sacrifice those things, 
he keeps score of all those things. And there are rewards waiting for you. And so I wonder, are you a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service? Would you bow together in prayer with me, please? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we would confess that every single one of us has had times in our life, and maybe even now are in the midst of a time where we have not dedicated or given everything back to you. Lord, if there are some here who are sitting under the, the preaching of your word, Lord, would you work? Would you move them to give their everything back to you? Lord, if there's one here who's yet to accept Christ, would you help them to realize that what they need to give is they need to give their very selves. They need to accept Christ. They need to give, uh, they need repentance. They need to trust in Christ. They need the righteousness of, of Christ. And so, Lord, would you work and would you move in and through us this evening, Lord, that we would then be fit vessels in your hand to serve and to live for you. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.